At Total Wine & More, find the best gifts for everyone on your list, whether it's a Cabernet for sis or a single-barrel bourbon that dad will love. With the lowest prices for over 30 years, you'll always find what you love and love what you find. Only at Total Wine & More. Spirits not sold in Virginia and North Carolina. Drink responsibly. Be 21. Where can you find the best gifts at great low prices that everyone will love? At Total Wine & More, of course, with so many great bottles to choose from. Find something for everyone on your list, whether it's a Cabernet for your sis, sparkling wine for a coworker, or a single barrel bourbon for dad. And if you need any help, just ask one of their friendly guides for advice. With the lowest prices for over 30 years, you'll always find what you love and love what you find. Only at Total Wine & More. Spirits not sold in Virginia and North Carolina. Drink responsibly, B21. Hi, I'm Kristen McGlory, lifelong genius hunter. For almost a decade, I've been unearthing the recipes that have changed the way we cook. Now, on the Genius Recipe Tapes, we go behind the scenes with the geniuses themselves. And we get to hear from you. My guest this week is Chef Scott Peacock, founder of a very one-of-a-kind biscuit experience in Marion, Alabama, and longtime friend, collaborator, and housemate of the legendary chef Edna Lewis. So I recorded this conversation with Scott back in July about the most nostalgic cookie from his childhood, which is a five-minute, chocolatey, no-bake number that he grew up calling boiled peanut butter cookies. And at the end of the episode, we'll get to hear about some of your favorite childhood cookies too. But first, I wanted to quickly tell you about mine. They're called Coconut Classics or Coconut Classies, depending on whether you ask my mom or my aunt, which is all a little bit strange because they came from the same source. I think we can chalk it up to a glitch on a handwritten recipe card. You know, C's can look a lot like E's. But forever on my side of the family, they will be coconut classics, whether that C was originally an E or not. They're a simple, soft, buttery, slightly chewy cookie that is riddled with sweet and shredded coconut. And importantly, my mom could roll unlimited tubes of them to tuck away in the freezer so that she could slice and bake them anytime she needed a batch through the holidays. All that she had to do was brush the cookies with a little egg wash before baking to shine them up and decorate each one with a single pecan half to make them look very classy and also very classic. When I first tasted Scott's boiled peanut butter cookies, I felt like I knew them too. The first thing my husband said was, when have we had these? And you might remember them as well because I found that there are millions, truly millions of variations out there online with some people calling them names like preacher cookies or cow pies or poojies. As you'll hear in the interview though, Scott's lifelong reverence for these cookies and his curiosity as a chef has led him to an especially deep understanding of how to make them just how you like them and love them however they turn out. We also talked about what it was like to write and cook every day with his mentor, Edna Lewis, who he always calls Ms. Lewis, on the cookbook they worked on for a decade, The Gift of Southern Cooking, and how Ms. Lewis taught Scott to see Southern food and himself differently. But first, Scott takes us to his mother's kitchen when he was five years old. Hi, Scott. Hello, Kristen. You have said that this is your favorite cookie from childhood. Is that correct? Absolutely. Yeah, unquestionably. I mean, my, I feel myself blushing just thinking about yeah. that. Yeah. And I, I just got like a little bit of a sugar high, I think. Can you tell us about this recipe, the story behind it? I remember them from really early because, and I only know that because we moved when I was six years old, but I, I have a clear memory of my mother making them in the house um, where we lived before I was six. 
And I just remember the buttered aluminum foil, which was all kind of exciting on the kitchen counter. And she would make them and spoon them out. The whole thing, watching all of it. And they were all very familiar ingredients. I mean, even to a you know five-year-old. And um, she would make them. And we, my sister and I would both, who's three years older than I am, we would both be you know, standing there, crowded around the stove or still on the counter watching her, waiting, waiting, waiting. And then when she spooned them out, it was this interminable wait, it seemed like, for them to set. But then occasionally she would let us take a spoon to one that wasn't quite set. But you have to be careful, especially if you're a child, because they'll burn you. But in general, they didn't last all that long because we, we were so greedy with them. And then we moved when I was six, where um, Aunt Nuna lived, uh, or Aunt Nuna, as we called her. She was the supreme world cookie maker. Hers, hers were the very best. They always said they were always the same. They were always perfect. That and her peanut brittle, extraordinary. Oh my God, the peanut brittle. And then she taught my sister how to make them. And my sister was never very interested in cooking, but Janet learned to make them and make them by heart. She became the master of the half batch because she only liked them when they were still warm. You know, she didn't like them once they were set and cold. Although I honestly don't know the exact origin of the, of the recipe. I'm, I do feel confident that it was one of those convenience, you know, when we started getting recipes, that had a can of this and a package of this and, that I guess test kitchens were developing or someone was developing to use those. So, uh, and my best guess is that it probably emerged sometime in the fifties. I have um, tried making them with better peanut butter and with, you know, fancy cocoa, you know, raw sugar, et cetera. But to me, they did not have the childhood. I mean that, so I'm, I'm sure that nostalgic factor is, considerable for me. I would consider it a real character flaw if someone didn't like them in general, you know? <laughs> I think it's a pretty good litmus test. As for the setsness of them, sometimes they set, sometimes they don't. For you, is there an ideal texture once they do set or are you pretty happy no matter what? I, don't, I would probably rather have them under than over, but even when they're, even when they're that soft, glossy, um, sort of pliable stage, um, usually if they make it through the night, um, if they, they, they do continue to set, I think even just by virtue of evaporation to some degree, I mean, and you would definitely want them to cool a thousand percent before you would put them into, um, you know, any sort of container. And even if you go over, I was thinking with the last ones that I was making that were kind of crumbly, that they would be really good sprinkled on ice cream. That's what I was thinking. <laughs> yeah. It's exactly what I was thinking. I think they would be terrific in that, you know? And usually there's some crumbs that come behind anyway when you start peeling them up and or, you know, cleaning out the, the pot itself, which you just, I would always wait. If I wasn't able to get everything out, usually not, you just wait for that to cool completely and then take a spoon and scrape every last bit out. And that's pretty, pretty delicious, even just from the spoon. But over ice cream would be terrific. For me, I think because it is such a nostalgic, creature uh, and it is I mean you know, for me there's there's a little bit of time travel to it especially when it's in that commercial peanut butter you know commercial mainstream cocoa it resonates in a, in a very very uh, powerful way for me I think um, other people making it will feel similarly um, I mean obviously your memories are very connected to 
the time travel that you're doing, but the first bite that I had, and also the first bite that my husband had, the first thing my husband said was, when have we had these? And that was similar to, uh, yes. like, we, I know this flavor. I like it, it right somewhere in my childhood, either like my family made them or I had them at bake sales or something, or it also took me back a little bit to being in junior high and, um, a friend introducing me to muddy buddies. Um, because that has, a I don't know those, but yeah, they also are called other names. Puppy chow is a common one. Puppy chow, buddy. <laughs> so. I think in the Midwest, puppy chow is a, is, um, a very common thing. Basically it's, um, it's another one of these recipes that was probably developed by a, a test kitchen. Similarly, very sweet. And the, the like very like, um, approachable flavors of chocolate and peanut butter melding all together. Right. Right. <laughs> and so what were the occasions that you would have these cookies? It Was it usually just kind of a treat to have at home with your family or would they also be made for occasions, you know, bigger holiday celebrations or bake sales at school or anything like that? I only have one memory of them being made for an occasion where we took them out to our farm and some other families joined us for a cookout and was for some sort of summer holiday. I don't remember which one. It could easily have been the 4th of July or something. And um, But for the most part, it was something that was made at home. And that may, again, be the fact that we were so greedy, you know, that if they were made, it was hard to keep them around. They, ne they were never around for very long. This is the Genius Recipe Tapes. We'll be right back. This recipe... You reach for the top olive oils and invest in the best pans. But in the kitchen, how well do you care for your greatest tool, your hands? When mine take a beating cooking and cleaning, which is often, I use Bag Bomb to work its wonders on my poor, distressed skin. Created 125 years ago on a Vermont dairy farm, their soaps smell great and clean hands without stripping moisture, and their fast-absorbing lotion means I can quickly get back to cooking. Treat your hard-working hands to Bag Bomb, every chef's best friend. Use code FOOD52 for 20% off your order on bagbomb.com. Good through 2024. You reach for the top olive oils and invest in the best pans. But in the kitchen, how well do you care for your greatest tool, your hands? When mine take a beating cooking and cleaning, which is often, I use Bag Bomb to work its wonders on my poor, distressed skin. Created 125 years ago on a Vermont dairy farm, their soaps smell great and clean hands without stripping moisture, and their fast-absorbing lotion means I can quickly get back to cooking. Treat your hard-working hands to Bag Bomb, every chef's best friend. Use code FOOD52 for 20% off your order on bagbomb.com. Good through 2024. <laughs> as I discovered it from you, it was published in your book with Edna Lewis. I would really love to hear what the process was like of making that book and you know how long it took you and how did the two of you put it together? It, it, was, it was a long process. It was a slow process. We did have an amazing editor, Judith Jones, the late Judith Jones, and that was wonderful and also intimidating. And it, it did. I mean, it was the book originally was supposed to have come together in a year. And it instead, I think the, the pub date was actually seven years and one day from the day that Judith Jones said to the two of us, you know, you should write a book together. And the process has been together because, you know, I could type and such. So I was doing the book is in my voice. It was absolutely a, a full collaboration. It was a mix of recipes from our own experiences, separate from each other, from childhood and just from life. And then a lot of it was um, research that we did together or just everyday cooking that we did together because it did take a while to complete. I mean, by the time it was finished, we, we had 
we were living together. But in the years before we were living together, we would go on retreats. And we would go to, sometimes to my mother's house in Alabama and stay for a week or two and just cook, cook, cook in her kitchen. And also at Judith Jones's house in that very storied kitchen that just had evidence of the most amazing cookbook authors everywhere you looked. I mean, there was some gadget or, or some vessel or something that you recognized from a Marcello book or a Marion Cunningham book or James Beard and on an Miss Lewis. I mean, there were evidence everywhere. It was quite wonderful. Before I met her, before I met Miss Lewis, I certainly wasn't thinking about Southern food at all. I liked it, but I didn't, uh, I didn't have very high regard for it. It was common to me. I, I didn't have any idea there was any depth or breadth to it. You know, I was young and, you know, Southern food was not popular at the time. Not at all. It was the opposite of popular at the time. And I wanted to be one of the cool kids because I was young. <laughs> so I wanted to be cooking Italian food or French food or things. So it was very much her, it was, it was a process, but I mean, it was, it was an epiphany for me, frankly, in, in the early days of that relationship that everything switched. And for me, from that moment, it was an actual moment, you know, that the rest of my life progressed. And I, I knew in that moment that this was what I would do and this is what I would do forever. I mean, this was the kind of cooking that I would do and to learn about it and explore it, try to champion it. I was, especially when I was younger, I was pretty evangelical. I've calmed down an awful lot since then. So in that, it was, uh, um, I mean, one of the greatest things she gave me was that realization that my own experience had been unique and uh, of worth and, and great value and delicious. I'm very proud of that book. And she was very proud of that book. And she would frequently comment on how heavy it was. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and it is, and it did take a long time. It wasn't always easy, but it, it does. It expresses that journey. I love that this book captures so many different facets of that, it, in that it's your experience from Alabama, Miss Lewis's experience from Freetown, Virginia, and other places that she lived and worked as well, and then everything in between, the places that you had done research and collected recipes from other places, I love that you say, I think in your introduction, the wide swath of the South and Southern cooking that the book represents. Um, so I do want to talk about your biscuit experience that you have been doing. Can you tell us about that? I would love to. The biscuit experience is an experience. It's, um, it is here in Marion. It is, I, I'm crazy about the biscuit. I think there's a universe in the biscuit. I think... Um, the biscuit speaks, the biscuit speaks, the biscuit speaks. It's an iconic Southern food. I think there's so much mystery to it. I grew up, my mother, who was a good cook, was not a good biscuit maker. And my father would ridicule them. And so from the time I was five or so, it was, you know, canned biscuits, refrigerator biscuits from the store, which I thought were amazing. Um, and I wondered how to make that. I have a long journey <laughs> with the biscuit. And um, so when people come for the biscuit experience, it's very small groups. I mean, it's, or sometimes it's one person. People can come for a private biscuit experience, but, you know, we try to limit it to four or five or six people tops. Um, our preference is that people put their own groups together. It has been so popular that we sometimes do put together mixed groups of people. And we might have people, we might have someone from New York and someone from, 
Houston and someone from London. I mean, it's, it's usually it's half a day or so. I mean, every biscuit experience is really a re- reaction to the people who attend. The beauty of the biscuit is that when you really get down to making biscuit, it takes about 10 minutes. There was one gentleman who came and he was in his 70s and he brought, um, when he came in the, in, the, in the front door, he had a, um, a biscuit bowl in a pillowcase under his arm. He had written ahead and said that he was bringing his grandmother's biscuit bowl to show to me. And she had, um, she had raised him, I think, and in Tennessee. And so her biscuits were very, very memorable and that for him and, and significant. And that was part of, that was what brought him on this journey to come. He told me and three people he did not know, two other people he didn't know, uh, you know, all about that experience and his memory of his biscuits and of her and what that meant for him. Um, and I asked him her name and it, his voice cracked and he turned away. The, the experience is, is whatever you bring to it. You know, and for some people it's very, it's very emotional or, I mean, a lot of people use the word spiritual, which I'm not opposed to. I think it's a word that gets overused a lot, but in, I mean, this is in the best sense. And, you know, like for me, the biscuit, it, everyone has their own biscuit in, inside of them and the biscuit I don't know. I know of nothing that expresses the actual touch of the cook more than a biscuit. And that comes through and that's very, very moving and very powerful. That's what is like, that will keep me going through all of this is the idea of taking a road trip to come see you and make biscuits and talk biscuits. Oh, I, I really do look forward to it. Scott, thank you so much for joining us and sharing all these stories. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Don't be a stranger. You too. All right. Bye, y'all. Have the best day ever. And now, here are some of our community's most memorable cookies. My name is Sham Nagarajan. Nankatai is a popular cookie in India. During one of my travels into Delhi, in one of those by lanes was this old lady baking these fragrant cookies. She had repurposed an oil tin to make that into an oven where she layered sand in the bottom and she fired it with embers of coal. She deftly mixed all-purpose flour, semolina, ghee and sugar and flavored it with cardamom and the warmth of her palm in her wrinkled hands came out the most beautiful cookies and she put it into the oven and in about 10 to 12 minutes the most fragrant blistered cookie was out and uh, on a cold winter evening with a cup of chai in your hand and this flaky soft warm cookie with a smoky aroma from the coal was just a flavor memory to cherish. My name is Keisha and I'm from Malaysia. My favorite cookie memory happens not only during Christmas, but also during the Lunar New Year. My mom would come home with blocks of butter and I'd know it's time. It would always be a sticky, oily mess to get it together and the smell of butter would practically fill the whole kitchen. The batter is so soft, we have to pipe out the cookies straight onto the baking sheet. Sometimes we would decorate it with candied cherries. Super yummy. It only takes about seven to nine minutes to bake. And oh my God, the smell that it makes is amazing. 
So these Chinese butter cookies are my favorite cookie memory. Hi, this is Jessica Goldman Vong, author of Low So Good and Sodium Girl's Limitless Low Sodium Cookbook. So this cookie story begins with a cake, a simple icebox cake made from delicately smushing together whipped cream and chocolate wafers. A cake that my grandmother and then my mother all made for every family birthday that I can remember that I only realized as an adult actually came from a recipe on the back of the box. But even though this cake is simple, in many ways kind of stolen, it is the thread of many childhood memories. Sneaking a lick of whipped cream from the bowl, learning to cut on an angle to reveal the stripes, exposing a zebra-like print that has kind of become the crest of my maternal line. So it seems only fitting that on one particular birthday, this story about a cake became one about a cookie. On my 21st birthday, I was diagnosed with a severe case of lupus and kidney failure, and I spent the first few months of my newly minted adulthood life fighting to survive. After that, much of my life looked very different, including what I could eat. Birthdays were no longer about celebrating another year past, but another year gained. And while I had to reimagine much of my daily habits, I found myself clinging to symbols of normalcy, like this icebox cake but the cookie needed a makeover. So being born on December 23rd, I've always had a very natural obsession with the holidays. I spent the morning of my bat mitzvah singing Christmas carols. I love the lights, the music, the smells. So it made sense to turn to the one cookie that screams childhood joy and wonder, gingerbread. My mother and I began experimenting with recipes, baking the gingerbread discs until the outside was crisp so it would hold up against the whipped cream clouds with strong enough spices so the flavors of cinnamon, clove, and ginger would sprinkle throughout the cake like tinsel finding its way into every corner of the house. And what was once a recipe pilfered from the package of chocolate wafers suddenly had my fingerprints all over it. Knowing my life will be full of health challenges, I often think of what I will leave behind, especially as a mom. And this holiday gingerbread cookie icebox cake is now a part of my legacy. And maybe not just the recipe, but the idea that with a few adjustments, challenges can really be opportunities and different can be good. Thanks for listening. Our show was put together by Coral Lee, Emily Hanhan, and me, Kristen McGlory. So I hope that this show stirred up some memories of your own and gets you and your loved ones talking about them over Zoom, even if you can't be together this year. Wishing you all happy and healthy holidays.